From the Salvation Army, welcome to the Holiness Podcast with Lieutenant Colonel Vern Jewett. In this monthly Bible study, we'll be exploring God's gift of holiness, which is offered to every Christian. To download this month's study guide, visit us at SalvationArmySoundcast.org slash holiness. Hi friends, I'm Cam Henderson, and it's my privilege to work every month with Vern on recording these Holiness Podcast episodes. This one's a little unique in that it was recorded live in our chapel as part of our virtual Holiness Conference on October 24th. Colonel Jewett explores for us what is Wesley Arminian holiness that we teach in the Salvation Army. I hope you'll forgive a few audio problems for this recording, but I know you'll be blessed by this powerful message. God bless you. Well, it's great to see you here in the chapel and uh, those of you who will be watching. We have the Holiness uh, Seminar. A month, a little over a month. It's a wonderful opportunity uh, for us to stop and consider uh, a very important topic. It's great to see you here, you here at DHQ. I think I know most of you, and it's wonderful to uh, be able to spend this time with you and see you and uh, be here in this place. Now, the assignment that was given to me, I have decided was impossible for me to fulfill. Uh, to introduce you to the teaching of biblical holiness by John Wesley was part of my assignment. The other part of my assignment was to give us some idea of the Salvation Army's theological position among the church at large, among the universal church. Where and how do we fit in? And to whom do we relate and in what way? And that is going to be accomplished, I hope, by taking a brief look at Wesleyan Arminianism. And so after we look a little at the scripture and talk about uh, uh, scriptural holiness and John Wesley, we're going to look specifically at three historical characters. John Calvin, Jacob Arminius, and then John Wesley. The first thing I want to say to you in the theme of this presentation is simply this. You were saved to be holy. You were saved and you are saved for the purpose of being holy. Now, John Wesley, as well as William and Catherine Booth, Samuel Logan Brengel, Many others in the history of our tradition have spoken about this in terms of heart holiness. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to see you. I want to know you. The heart is where we dream, decide, deliberate, want, and will. The heart is control central. It's the only fully independent entity in our entire existence. No one invades it unless we give them permission. It's the core of who and what we are. It's the real, authentic me. This is the place Christ wants to meet us. 
and he won't meet us anywhere else. My own experience is that I have wanted him to meet me at church or in my quiet time or at the safe and comfortable outer edges of who I pretend sometimes to be. But he meets me at my heart. The scriptures are very clear about the importance of holiness in our lives. One example is from Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, very well-known passage. Actually, chapter 7, verse 1, Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. There it is, clear, straightforward, uncompromising, scriptural truth. It's the counterpart to what Peter says and John says. Peter says it when he quotes the Old Testament, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy for I am holy. So there are no tricks, no hidden meetings to this and dozens of passages that call us to holiness. Now there's an important principle of Scripture I would remind us of as we begin. When God gives us a command, there's always a promise implicit in it. Because He doesn't tell us to do things He's not going to enable us and empower us to do. But, you know, the state of holiness is of concern to many in our movement, many in the Salvation Army, many in the greater holiness movement, frankly, many in the church, because everyone acknowledges the importance of holiness, even though we define it differently. I believe Dr. Bill Urey is 100% right when he says that the church and the Salvation Army teach it, but we really don't believe it. And we really don't expect it, and therefore we really don't experience it far too often. The great call to holy living has been undermined by the teaching of so many leaders, influential Christian leaders, who tell us that we should strive for holiness, but of course it won't happen until we die. We're going to look at that. We should not sin, but of course, we will sin every day. I thought the best way to get us into this very important dynamic and teaching was to share with you the way I was brought into the heart of it about 30 years ago. I was riding in the hills of Tennessee on my way from Atlanta to somewhere in north central Tennessee. And it was a Sunday, and I was in a rented car. And there was only AM radio. And as I went through the channels, I realized I only had two choices. I could either listen to NASCAR, or I could listen to country preaching. So I decided to listen to country preaching. And 
I got caught in the middle of a local service. It had to be nearby because the reception wasn't very good or for very long. And just before the preacher began to preach, as is common in many church services, he asked a young lady to sing a special song. Now, we're going to play a little bit of that song for you, and then I'm going to uh, talk about it a little bit. It's actually recorded by George Jones. It didn't sound like this on that Sunday morning, but this is the song. Thank you. Now, I hope you caught that line. Each verse tells a story of a different uh, person who was struggling with their Christian life. But when you get to the chorus, the only difference between a sinner and a saint is that one is forgiven and the other ain't. Now, I was all by myself driving through the hills. I began to think about that. I thought to myself, that sounds pretty good to me. How about you? Sounds like the struggling, sinful self that I know. Not much different than others. After all, as a believer, I was drawn to this explanation and understanding of the tension between the reality of my salvation and the equal reality of my struggle to live a victorious Christian life. Frankly, it soothed my conscience, it relieved my guilt, it lowered my expectations by lowering the standard by which I had to live. I could palpably feel the sense of relief. And I'm sure other listeners experienced the same thing. It resonated with the popular bumper sticker we see. Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Here's an answer to the tension that grips every believer at some point early in their Christian journey. I've been saved by faith in Jesus Christ, but I find myself struggling to live. I want to say to you, the only thing problem with all the only problem with all of that is that it's not true. It's not true that the only difference between a sinner and a saint is that one is forgiven and the other isn't. Let's talk about that a little bit. What happens to us when we are saved? Because when we start talking about sanctification or holiness, and those two words are identical, they come from the same root, they, they can be translated either way anytime they appear in Scripture. When we start talking about sanctification, we are talking about salvation. Salvation is the big term. And it means being rescued. It also means being healed. And it speaks of God's complete work in our lives. But there are two aspects to it, especially the way John Wesley taught and emphasized it. First, there is justification. That's saving grace. We're saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Saving grace. We are justified. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. But the other part of it is sanctifying grace. So what happens when we're saved at conversion? It's true that we're forgiven. And that's a very important part of what happens. I like to speak of these certain things that happen as being objective 
realities of becoming a child of God, of being saved. We are justified. Romans 5.1 says we are counted as righteous. We are redeemed. We're bought with a price, and that price was the blood of the Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We are forgiven. Ephesians 1.7 says that our sins are forgiven. We're adopted into the family of God. Galatians 3.26, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now I want you to think about those things. We are counted as righteous, we're redeemed, we're forgiven, we're adopted. All of that happens outside of us. All of that happens objectively. All of that happens instantaneously. All of that happens completely. All of that happens once in our lives. And I understand the temptation to say that that is the only difference between a Christian and someone who doesn't know Christ. The problem with the song, and actually the problem with the preacher that day as well, because he immediately began, immediately, as I suspected, began telling us that we shouldn't expect too much of ourselves, and we are going to sin every day, and what we need to remember is that we are in Christ. We are positionally saved and sanctified. He did actually use the term that day. There's another part of being saved. We're ignoring the part that happens within us if we say the only difference is being forgiven and justified. We've been born again. We call that regeneration. Jesus told Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, born a second time, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. We have been initially sanctified by the coming into our lives of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 9 says, everyone who is a Christian has the Holy Spirit in their lives. And so the result is not only that our name is written in heaven and we're forgiven of our sins, but there's a new power and presence in our lives. You are saved to be holy. There are two terms that are used when we start talking about sanctification theologically. The first term applies to all of those objective things. Traditionally, we have referred to that as imputed righteousness. We are counted as righteous. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. You've heard the illustration probably many, many times that God looks at us, but he looks through the blood of Christ and sees us as righteous. and We are counted as righteous. It is imputed. However, we also believe the Bible teaches clearly, as we just saw, that holiness is imparted to us in our actual lives. The Holy Spirit comes and lives within us and we believe in imparted righteousness. Here's the biggest difference. 
imputed righteousness at the point of salvation removes the guilt of sin. We're forgiven. Imparted righteousness, holiness, sanctification breaks the power of sin in our lives. That is clearly taught in Scripture and was the hallmark of the teaching and emphasis of John Wesley. You see, salvation, that point of salvation, is what God does for us through Christ. Sanctification is what God does in us through the Holy Spirit. Yes, the guilt of sin is forgiven. It all happens at a moment. I've been uh, educated in a new way in recent years about being transactional. That's a transaction. It takes place at a moment in time. And we come in faith believing and we are counted as righteous. The guilt of our sin is forgiven and God saves us. And we become his child. What happens from then on is a lifetime. This is a moment. The most important moment in our lives. But the rest of our lives is not dealt and in the arena of being justified. It's being sanctified, set apart for God. Now, this business about the power of sin being broken is a powerful, powerful truth. If this is transactional, this is experiential. And it's ongoing for the rest of your life. A rich, broad scriptural teaching and tradition is to refer to this, and John Wesley did, as full salvation. Think of that. Salvation is justification at a moment and sanctification for the rest of our lives. That's full salvation. Now, there are many other themes that unpack what it means to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and sanctified. You see, being sanctified is something God does. We consecrate ourselves. That's our act. But God sanctifies us, sets us apart, cleanses us, purifies us. A pure heart, the gift of the Holy Spirit. I wrestle often with why holiness seems to be such a struggle. Part of it is that we don't understand it. Part of it is that the teaching brings some confusion into our lives. But part of it is that so many of us are at that point where we've been delivered and saved, but we're not moving on. And we're not aware of the wonderful truth in Romans 12, 2. Don't be conformed to this world. And both of these verbs here are passive because we don't do it. God does it. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed from the inside out by the renewing of your mind 
That you'll be able to know what is the good and acceptable and complete will of God. So many of us then, I believe, so many even sitting in the pews are saved but stuck. Now before we come back to that at the end, I want to put that teaching in the context of what we call systematic theology. That's doctrine. That's the systems of theology that have been developed down through the centuries in the church. And to understand what it means to be a Wesleyan Arminian, we have to stop for a moment and go back to the 16th century, that would be the 1500s, when the Protestant Reformation was taking place. This was finally the breakaway from the Roman Catholic Church and the rediscovery of being saved by grace through faith. And most of the churches to which we belong, if we are not Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, are the result of the Protestant Reformation. Now one of the earliest reformers was John Calvin. He was the greatest organizer and the best systematic thinker, or at least the most verbose and extensive systematic thinker of the Protestant Reformation. He lived from 1509 to 1564. He wrote a major work called the Institutes, and that work has been available in every meaningful language ever since he was alive until today. You can get it and read it. Most famously, he established what we call now Calvinist or Reformed theology. It's characterized still today by a very simple acronym. Some of you will be aware of it, TULIP. And that stands for these five things. Total depravity. That means that we are lost in our sin. There is nothing good within us because we are born in sin and we have election and predestination, which we believe in because they are biblical terms. But what John Calvin believed was that it was that that election, that predestination was unconditional. L is for limited atonement. He believed that God chose for whom the atonement of Jesus Christ would be sufficient and effective. And it was limited to those whom God chose. I stands for irresistible grace. Grace could not be resisted. If God chose you, you're going to receive it. You can't resist it. And finally, the perseverance of the saints. Now, all around Europe, here's John Calvin in Geneva, Switzerland, and all around Europe, Christian denominations, churches, theologians, and pastors are wrestling with this, and believe me, it was a raging controversy. Because many people immediately said, unconditional election? No. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's conditional upon our receiving it. 
as the Bible over and over in the New Testament calls us to make the choice to receive. Limited atonement, I think that probably was the most difficult thing for tens of thousands of Christians to accept. The Bible says that Christ died for the whosoever and that he desired that all men be saved. So it's not limited. It's limitless. And third, irresistible grace. Again, many people could not accept that. Believing that God has given us the ability And I hate to use the term free will because it's abused and misused a lot. And it's not a simple matter of predestination here and free will here. But God has given us a free will in terms of being able to receive or reject the gospel. Well, in Holland, Colonel Like, Jacob Arminius, a Dutch theologian and pastor, after whom our movement and uh, uh, those churches with whom we uh, share history are named. He lived from 1510 to 1609. He wrote a major work, the works of Jacob Arminius, and that work has been available in every meaningful language ever since it was written, including today. And in it, he espoused the rejection of limited atonement, the rejection of unconditional election, and the rejection of irresistible grace. Now, let me tell you, you probably have heard the terms Calvinism. Certainly, you've probably heard that. Many of you have heard the term Arminianism. Those are theological points of view and systems of theology, particularly about the nature of salvation. They are not movements. They are not organizations. They're these two systematic ways of looking at salvation as it's presented in the Bible. And I want to say this. I want to say a couple of things. First of all, you're not one or the other. There are a thousand varieties in between. There are people who call themselves Arminian Calvinists. There are people who call themselves Calvinistic Arminians. There are people who don't accept what Calvin says here, but accepts the rest. People that don't accept what Arminius says, except here and there. However, at the root of it all, you cannot accept both Calvin and Arminius. And so the world of Christendom today is divided into two great families. They both consist of tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of Christians around the world. Some following what we just described as Calvinism, others following what we described as Arminianism. Now let's talk for a moment and unpack just for a moment because we don't have too much time. Calvin says this is what predestination means. We call predestination God's eternal decree by which he determined within himself what he willed to become of each man. In other words, salvation is imposed. It is all God. There's nothing for you to do because you are elected. You are chosen. 
And you are predestined to be saved. Now actually Calvin believed until he died. What theologians call double predestination. Along with that comes the reality. Those who are not chosen to be elect. Were chosen to reprobation. And that God simply chose who would be saved. And chose who wouldn't be saved. Arminius believed that salvation is not imposed, but is freely received. And I think the best way to consider the difference is not with the tags or the titles or the names. I would like for you, uh, you probably won't remember this term, synergism, but it speaks of any theological belief in which human participation is involved in salvation. So as Arminians, we are synergistic. We believe that we are saved by grace through faith. And that even the gift of faith comes from God. But as it is given to us, that inclination, which comes from God to every person, which we'll talk about in a second in the last term we're going to mention, as that happens, we choose to Receive. Nothing we can do earns salvation. But we have to choose to accept it. The opposite term would be monergism, which is the term applied to Calvinism or Reformed theology, God's all-determining will and power to the exclusion of any human free cooperation. Now, There were times in church's history where denominations and people on those two sides were very much clashing with one another. I'm thankful in my lifetime I've seen that wane somewhat, going back over 60 years of being aware of of this. Because I can tell you, both of these approaches to theology have their foundation in Scripture. Depending on where you start, I can pretty well tell you where you're going to finish. And Calvin started with the decrees of God. And that's why he finished where he did in terms of his theology. It is not for us to do anything, I believe, except shake the hand of our Calvinist brothers in Christ, but be fully convinced of what we believe about what the Scripture says. Now, part of the, the most important reason I think Major Henderson wanted me to mention Arminianism and explain what it is, is because it's, it has a tremendous effect on how you see holiness. What is holiness to a Calvinist? Calvinists believe that the power of sin is not broken in our lives. We believe the coming of the Holy Spirit breaks the power of sin, that we can be in perfect relationship with God by the presence of the Holy Spirit, that he can have all of us and all of our songs and all of our preaching and teaching reflect that reality. But listen, Calvin said life as a Christian is marked by a spiritual war. 
between the corrupted part of the believers, that's sin, and the renewed part of the believers, that's grace. And the struggle continues all through life because you're not going to be holy until you die. Now there's a substantial corpus of Christian literature today that says about Christian living, you aren't holy because you don't strive and try hard enough. Actually, that is what Calvinists believe. Christians work, they work to kill sin, and they work to live in the Spirit. Jerry Bridges, a very prominent Calvinist theologian, says, But surely, just as surely, no one will attain it without effort on his own part. God has made it possible for us to walk in holiness, but he's given us the responsibility of walking. He says, when it comes to sanctification, we don't just look to the Lord. We don't just get gripped by the gospel. We also work hard to be holy. Holiness for Calvinists is that right deeds produce right relationships. Holiness for Arminians is that right relationship, which is completely surrendering to God, produces right deeds. And they are opposed to one another. It's no wonder we're confused. It's no wonder, after listening to the only difference between a sinner and a saint is one is forgiven and another and the other ain't, that I'm confused. It's the picture of a frustrated Christian, I believe, and many Christians who do not understand that the Bible teaches that we can be empowered by the Spirit, set apart for Christ. We can live in His presence. And as Galatians says, not I, but Christ can live in me so that the life I live, I live by the power of the Son of God. Just to make sure that the difference is clear, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great Reformed scholar, says, Sanctification is not by surrender, but by divinely enabled toil and effort. So that's the difference when it comes to holiness. And then in 1703, John Wesley is born. And in the 18th century, he lived till 1791, he acknowledged early on in his ministry as a young man his belief in Arminianism and his strong objection to Calvinism. He emphasized the doctrine of holiness. He has impacted the church in an incredible way. You cannot read that part of our history of Christian history without reading about how John Wesley's teaching on entire sanctification has impacted the church tremendously. One writer says, Wesleyan doctrine of Christian perfection restored the New Testament message to its original wholeness. Another said, Wesley gave the doctrine of holiness an entirely new cast. He freed the idea from any notion of merit and presented it as holy, the gift of God's grace. The last thing Jesus said 
was that the Father was going to give us a gift. And that gift was the Holy Spirit who comes and makes us holy. It's not sinless perfection. It's not moral perfection. It's Christian perfection, which means that you can live motivated completely by the love of God rather than by your own selfish will. And you do that by the power of God the Holy Spirit who lives in you. Now, Wesley's unique contribution included a term called prevenient grace. He looked at grace and he understood that a lot of the objections from the Calvinists were that there are many places in Scripture that make it clear that we can't save ourselves. Only God can save us. The initiative has to come from God. And as he studied the Scripture, he believed and came to understand that, yes, God initiates for every single person that's ever lived. God initiates into their lives a sense of his purpose and will. Jesus said, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In John 6.44. John also talked about the light that enters every man. This explained the fact that man did not initiate the salvation plan. God initiated it. Prevenient grace. I like to call it the God who is already there. No matter what happens to you, God is already there. He has reached out. And we believe everyone has a sense and an awareness of that. So, John Wesley says, we are sanctified as well as justified by faith. No man is sanctified till he believes. Every man, when he believes, is sanctified. What it actually means when he says Christian perfection, and he had to explain this all the time. He, he had to explain that holiness is not an objective standard of behavior. Holiness is perfect relationship. Righteousness in the New Testament is right relationship. And so he one of his followers says what it actually means is that the person who experiences it no, long, no longer willfully breaks the law of God, but rather acts completely out of love. Wind this up. We in the Salvation Army stand in the tradition of Wesleyan, Arminian, and the holiness movement. The 19th century. Our founders, William and Catherine Booth, were Methodists. Now, Wesley started and is the father of Methodism, but he never wanted to make another church. He was an Anglican and stayed an Anglican. But the movement and the revival that came through his ministry on both sides of the Atlantic Interesting, before we were ever a country, John Wesley was in Georgia preaching. We stand in that heritage 
We are tied in our heritage to all Methodist denominations. We are tied in our heritage to all those in the holiness movement. Some of the larger churches with whom we have a natural cousinship and heritage are uh, the Wesleyan Church, Christian and Missionary Alliance, the Church of the Nazarene. And you know, early in the 20th century in California, the Pentecostal movement started. And you know, all Pentecostal churches are in the heritage of Wesleyan Arminianism. And in the last 50 years around the world, the fastest growing churches are Pentecostal churches. The Salvation Army has committed to holiness as the central doctrine which we believe. We have 11 cardinal doctrines. Catherine Booth said, if holiness be not the central idea of Christianity, then I don't understand it. Dr. Roger Green sat on the International Spiritual Life Commission about 20 years ago, met in London. They were given the charge to look at every aspect of the Army's spiritual life. They gave a great attention to what he calls our central doctrine, the doctrine of holiness. The affirmation reads like this. We affirm that God continues to desire and to command that the people be holy. For this Christ died, and for this Christ rose again. For this the Spirit was given. We therefore determine to claim as God's gracious gift that holiness which is ours in Christ. We confess that at times we have failed to realize the practical consequences of the call to holiness within our relationships, within our communities, and within our movement. We resolve to make every effort to embrace holiness of life, knowing that this is only possible by means of the power of the Holy Spirit producing his fruit in us. I want to challenge you. Never forget, our son went to a Calvinistic college, and he lived in a dorm. And after he'd been there two or three weeks, and people started to find out who he was and where he came from, about five guys came in one night and said, Are you kidding? You really think you can be holy? And for the next six weeks, every night, that discussion was going on on that floor of that dorm. Because Booth's answer was, yes, I believe I can be holy. If Christ lives in me, how can I not be holy? I want to challenge officers. Holiness is the central doctrine of the Salvation Army. This is not an occasional topic for a sermon so you can keep balance to your preaching. I want to challenge soldiers. We cannot fulfill our mission as the Salvation Army without living holy lives and being empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is not an ancillary doctrine. This is not an optional theme for Christian living. This is not an experience once a year when we go to the Holiness Center at Camp Keystone for a weekend. In the words of Dr. Bill Urey, our national ambassador for holiness, holiness is always a full frontal confrontation with reality. 
I don't have time, but I would read you a textual exchange happened just this last week. Somebody sent me and said, look, is holiness this responding to a situation in her life or is holiness this? At the end of every day, we should, if we are living in the power of God's spirit, we should be able, I like to pray myself to sleep. We should be able to think of all the times when we sought his guidance and his will and depended upon his spirit so that what we did and how we lived and who we were were set apart and holy unto the Lord. When we began, I said, it all is a matter of the heart. Are you a committed Christian this morning? Let me ask you then to forget everything else here. This has been kind of a lecture, but the truth of God's word is here. Look at your heart. Joel 2, 12 and 13 says, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. I believe that a perfect heart makes a perfect Christian. And I have a little card that illustrates it as we come to the close of our time together. This little card is 35 years old. It was given to me as a birthday card by my two daughters in 1985. Anna was six and Sarah was three. Now, my birthday is in December. So they picked it out. My birthday card says, Holiday Cheer. And if you open it up and look at it, I've made some notes on the bottom. But if you look at the top, they signed it up above the greeting, not below the greeting. And there are some backward letters. Sarah, Anna, Anne. Now, by any standard of measurement, this is not faultless. But this is perfect. A perfect heart makes a perfect Christian. Dear friends, you and I are saved to be holy. God bless you. Thanks so much for listening, and we'd love to hear from you. Share your thoughts, questions, or prayer requests. Visit us at SalvationArmySoundcast.org slash holiness. And if you're enjoying this Bible study, share it with a friend. They can subscribe wherever they get their podcasts.